The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit sorting your tweets and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 448 with guest Miguel Castro, recorded live Wednesday, April 29th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now... The man who says that set of neodymium magnets actually was a great Mother's Day present. Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin. Hey, and this is Richard Campbell. We're here for your listening pleasure for the next hour or so. It's a Thursday show. What's up, Richard? Uh, not too much, man. I'm I'm glad TechEd's over. That's all I can tell you. It's a lot of work for us. It's fun, yeah. but it's hard work. A lot of fun. Yeah, it's 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 always fun to be so involved in the, in that conference and uh, just a lot of great content and community happening as well. Hey, let's get right into Better Know Framework for today. And Better Know Framework is this uh, little segment of the show that I do where I shine a little light on a dark corner of the .NET framework just for your understanding of what's in the box. And over right. time... These things sort of sink in, and if you're interested in something, you can go look it up online. So we've been talking a lot, of course, about the uh, system.windows.controls namespace, the you know, WPF controls. And today I'm going to talk about items presenter and items panel and items control. An items presenter class is used within the template of an item control to specify the place in the control's visual tree where the items panel defined by the items control is to be added so these things work together. There's some great samples of uh, XAML in the documentation. There isn't a whole lot you can say to that, except uh, there's a great comment. There's community content, you know, in the MSDN. And yeah. what's great is that the, the first comment is, this info is useless. 
<laughs> Thanks so much for that. Thank you. You've been Thank great. You Try much. the veal. Yeah. So uh, so that's that's about all I can say right now. Take a look at it. There's some more documentation. Obviously, people are blogging about it. Items presenter. And uh, maybe Miguel will have something to say about that because so much of WPF sort of mimics the way ASP.NET has done presentation uh, in the past. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Hey, if you're interested in working for a great company, Infusion Development is hiring in their New York office, their Toronto office, their uh, Dubai office, and their London office. They're looking for talented people that are doing SharePoint. Uh, or if you're just a, a .NET guru and you work well with others and you want to try, you want an adventure, uh, there are opportunities out there. Send an email to me, carl at franklins.net. Richard, you got an email? Yes, indeed I do. And this one's from South Africa. Yeah. Yes, sir. Hey, Richard and Carl, I just wanted to drop you guys a line and send greetings from deepest, darkest, bandwidth limited South Africa. <laughs> And I've heard stories that, that South Africa really is kind of strict on they, the connectivity within the country is pretty good. But as soon as you try and get out to the rest of the world, things get expensive fast. Oh, uh, don't worry. On occasion, we have bandwidth, electricity and even running water. Ooh. <laughs> I started listening to .NET Rocks about four months ago after deciding I needed to broaden my horizons. Being one of those people that never seemed to have enough time, I was determined to turn my two hour daily commute into more than just aggravation and boredom. Although I will admit, a good audiobook still goes down well. <laughs> and so I began the great search for podcasts worthy of my time and travels. This is quite the, the, the mission here. I found a few and started eagerly downloading it some back issues. A few included those from .NET Rocks. After becoming a total fan, I now eagerly wait for my drive from the office to home and back again and keep a close eye on my RSS feeds to .NET Rocks. I just wanted to tell you why .NET Rocks rocks nice and is my first choice of techie podcasts awesome so here's my list one the format of the show is great the lively banter camaraderie certainly make for great entertainment two better know a framework is always enlightening three the quality of your guests and speakers is exceptional and highly informative and four you two are pretty interesting as well hmm. how about that yeah how about that I hope you guys keep up the great work and keep broadening my mind and lightening my journey. P.S. We also have coffee in this part of the world, and a mug that can be shown off to all the other devs would be great. Well, I think that is uh, a pretty big hint. Yeah, I think I'll go for that. Yeah, we'll go for that. All the best regards, Ian Mechanic from Edlene, South Africa. Thank you, Ian. And you bet a mug's on its way all the way to South Africa. Awesome. And if you've got any questions, comments, concerns, ideas from shows, flames, you name it, fire us an email, .net rocks at franklins.net. Uh, Miguel Castro, of course, uh, is an MVP uh, for ASP.NET. He uh, lives and resides in uh, New Jersey. He is uh, a guru's guru of ASP.NET. And today, uh, Miguel, it's something of a little bit of a different show. You're a little pissed off. I'm feeling a little bitter, Carl. I really am, and and I I, I think I I'm in the mood to take it out on your listeners. Oh man, <laughs> I really I really am. Well, and, and you know I I I'm, and I'll I'll defer to taking it out on you guys until I see you in person because I'm that right. kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I I I identified the show as ten things that annoy Miguel Castro. 
That's it. That's well, it. This is this is my own little Dave Letterman twist here, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what's uh, what's first on the list? Well, um, I want to start by by I want to preface this by saying I'm not anti. I'm not a hundred percent anti any of the stuff I'm going to be talking about here. Um, you know, like everything in technology, there's good and bad points on just about any topic you can throw up in the air. And, uh, and, and I'm sure you'll agree, in the world of, of software development, there's a hundred, a hundred roads to take to an eventual goal, an eventual result. Right. Um, and that's pretty much the attitude that I t- attack every project with. And I don't see enough of that out there, and it's starting to really piss me off, and, and I'm, that, that's why I'm, I'm here to vent. This is, that's what I'm here to do now. So you don't, you don't uh, see objectivity? Is that what uh, is the... Um, not as much as I'd like to. Not as much as I'd like to. Um, and I, and I, I put together the... I mean, there's, there's many things that annoy me. Uh, it's just uh, the way life is, right? Um, I put together a list of, of 10 things that I want to discuss briefly. And, okay. and keep in mind, none of these things are related to, to each other. They're, they're all very, very different topics. So, you know, we jump from one to the other, not necessarily in, a, in order of uh, least to most annoying, by the way. I just want to say that. Um, the first one actually hits really close to home because it's CSLA related. And as you know, I'm, I'm very close to the CSLA framework. I'm the, uh, I'm the CSLA instructor for Dunn Training. Um, it's a project that me, Mark, and Rocky put together a few years ago, and it's worked uh, unbelievably well. I've, mm-hmm. I've gone around, uh, around a lot of you know, countries and a lot of states teaching the CSLA framework. Yep. And uh, one one of the things that the CSLA framework receives a lot of resistance from is the or one of the groups that it receives resistance from is the service orientation crowd, the SOA crowd. And I want to put an end to that myth while I have the attention of what what are you up to now? A hundred and fifty million listeners or something no, like that? Something like that. I don't know. Yeah. So uh, you know, while I, while I have the ear of the world, as they say, um, I want to put an end to that myth. Uh, you know, Rocky put a lot of work into the CSLA framework, and this, this definitely needs to be said. Um, it's not an anti-SOA framework. You know, service orientation is a great thing. It's definitely the, uh, in my personal preference, is the way to go when designing new systems today. There's a lot, there's a number of advantages. Uh, but because of the fact that CSLA was written with the, with the, the, the mantra of, you know, this is object orientation, we're writing an object-oriented framework, and uh, it's all about the business object. It seems to me that there's a big animosity between the business object crowd and the SOA crowd. Uh, and there's, uh, you know, you need to take a step back and really? realize that these two worlds are really meant to work together. Yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. You write code with objects, those objects relies, reside in servers that are autonomous. Does that, doesn't that sound like common sense? That's Absolutely. common sense to me. Absolutely. And, you know, when we design, uh, and, and, you know, I do work with iDesign, and, uh, and we do uh, service-oriented architecture consulting. And, you know, one, one, one of the things in the architecture that we recommend clients involves not just service orientation in a service layer, of course, but there's always the stuff that the service layer is obfuscating from the clients. And that stuff is generally object-oriented business engines. So these two worlds are meant to work together. Now, in order to, to fully put this myth to rest, I want to, because I know, I know we do some, have some listeners that are CSLA people, because Rocky gets a tremendous response from his shows. He tells me that all the time. Um, and he speaks uh, a lot on CSLA. I want to I wanna specifically address where the CSLA framework works in the service-oriented environment. And that is, it works in two different areas in two very different ways. Remember, CSLA is a business framework. 
which means it's there at your disposal, not the other way around. You use what pieces you want. Just because you're not using a business framework to its 100% full advantage um, doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. And uh, when you're doing standard CSLA OOP work, you're used to, you know, loading up these very intelligent, self-encapsulated objects uh, that are completely, you know, knowledgeable, and they know everything about what they can do and how they can do it, and then you use them for binding and end of story. Well, in the SOA world, it works a little different. In the SOA world, you got this wall, this kind of service orientation firewall, and you got clients talking to that wall, and you got a lot of activity going on behind the wall. So the two ways that I've used CSLA in the service orientation world is on the server side, behind the service, because obviously to a service, especially when you're using WCF, which is what I hope people are using out there in .NET, um, you're exposing a lot of data contracts and service contracts only, and of course CSLA has nothing to do with that. Now, behind the scenes, the way those data contracts get filled by the actual service itself, that can be done using CSLA objects in more of a, let's let's call it an ORM capacity, where they're used mostly for data access. Um, where does CSLA come in handy in such a capacity? Well, one of the good things that CSLA does is that it enforces standards. It, it preaches uniformity in your objects so that once you learn the framework, people know where to go for things without getting lost in the code. And that kind of uniformity and maintainability goes a long way in any layer of your architecture, even down at the data access part. So that's how I use CSLA on the service side of the wall. On the client side of the wall, CSLA objects really shine because they make for great smart proxies. Anybody that's used WCF knows you got to set up a proxy class which communicates with the service, right? CSLA right. objects can actually be the proxy class by using the channel factory. They can access services then fill themselves up, and once you got a filled-up CSLA object, from there, it's it's conventional, you know, by-the-book CSLA work with validation, authorization, data binding, all those cool things that uh, that the framework has to offer. So two different sides of the wall in, and being used in two different ways, same framework. That, to me, is actually a credit to the CSLA framework. So I want to tell the SOA crowd to uh, get a grip and, uh, and and try this out. I think you'll be pleased. Now, I'm just trying to imagine, if not for object orientation, you know, but not for building objects, how would you build SOA? With F-sharp, perhaps? Of yeah, course. You know, functional programming? Of course. But, you know, it's, the same can be said for every, um, for, for every programming paradigm that we've, that we've been progressing through through all the years, right, Rich? I mean, you know, from procedural to OOP to component orientation to service orientation – Everything is a natural evolution of the predecessor. Yeah. So, you know, without, without, and, and I, and I'm not, I don't want to steal Juval's show here because this actual little history that, that I just described in that last sentence, Juval does this in one of his presentations. He does it quite well where he talks about the history of programming and, and it really does come out that way where, you know, you started the, or you started a procedural programming. We moved into object orientation, which takes procedural to another level. Then we moved into component orientation in order to provide plumbing for connecting things together. And that took OOP to another level. Then we moved to SOA, which brought components to another level. You know, everything kind of evolves into the next thing. Right. Uh, so one is not a replacement for the other. And, uh, I just think the the world would be a lot happier place if, uh, if some of these, uh, people would stop their whining and, uh, and accept that. Well, you know, so anytime somebody says, you know, this technology or that technology is dead, I roll my eyes. You know, it just means that you can't use it for your application, you know. That's right. People That's tend right. to over-dramatize things, I think. 
besides, the technology that they're telling you is alive, they're going to be saying the dead statement on that one in about six months, you know? Right. There's always a tool for the job. That's right. Absolutely right. It's all about collecting as much in our arsenal of programming tools uh, as we can, and then just finding the right tool for the right job. It's really what it's all about. Which leads me to number nine on the list. Okay. Since we're going to backwards here. So uh, number nine on the list, and, and I, I, I do warn people that are listening now, okay, some of these things may get a little controversial. So, Carl, do you want to do one of those, uh, the opinions of the viewer or not necessarily, you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, usually our disclaimer is that uh, Franklin's <laughs> Net is solely responsible for the content, but I'm thinking of updating the disclaimer, too, that the views and opinions of our guests are theirs and theirs alone, you know? <laughs> there are, there are. But, but I, I will tell you that I've had, I've had discussions with a lot of developers on all the topics that I'm talking about in the next hour, and uh, I'm not alone in my thinking out there. No, but sure. I, I do not doubt for a second that I'm going to piss somebody off with this show. Well, I'm sure you will. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be Miguel if I didn't piss somebody off every time I opened my mouth, right? <laughs> yeah, I can tell you're really torn up about it, Miguel. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, it, it, I, it, you know, no publicity is bad publicity, right? That's Actually, right. you know who told me that? Oh, Basile told me that from Telerik. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. No publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> Take right. that as it will. But, uh, yeah. So anyway, num- number nine on my list, that the things that annoy me are CSS zealots. Uh-oh. There. Yeah. There, I've said it. I've said it, <laughs> plain and simple. CSS zealots. Now, I want to stress the word zealot here, okay? Yeah. i got absolutely nothing against CSS. It's an unbelievable technology. It works like a charm. It's you beautiful. It. Yeah. And you, I use it. I totally use it. Now, a CSS is kind of like a, I, I can I can say about CSS the same thing I say about, about Code Rush, a product that, that both me and you guys are very close to. Mm-hmm. Uh, Code Rush from DevExpress, I call it, I say that it's like the human brain. You know, most people use no more than about 15% of it. Right, right. And, and CSS is really the same thing. It can do an unbelievable amount of things, um, but most of us are not not using it to its full capacity, and the reason is very simple. It's got a very large learning curve. It's complex, yeah. It's very complex, um, and what I find from the CSS Zealot community, and, and I'm not, I'm not going to mention a single name in this show, okay? I'm going to let people use their imagination out there, because ev- everybody out there that's listening knows a CSS Zealot in their life. Oh, yeah. I know a couple of them here in Jersey. No. So, <laughs> so, and, they're, and they're listening right now. So, the I problem don't believe that I have, it. <laughs> the I've problem that I have, yeah, that's right, where they walk the streets. The, the problem that I have with CSS Zealots is the, 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 the preaching of CSS replacing everything HTML, specifically tables. We're talking about tables here. Because tables are a wonderful thing, and they're not antiquated, and they're not obsolete, and they shouldn't, and they should be used. They should be used properly. Um, and I, I see, I have conversations with people that consider themselves diehard web developers, and they uh, they're very much of that, you know, div tag all the way down. Uh, your website should consist of two things: div tags on your markup and a CSS file, and that's it. Yeah. And the truth, the truth is, is that if that's what you're, you know, that, that, that may be a realistic scenario in, in the traditional HTML web developer, but not in the ASP.NET developer, not in my humble opinion. ASP.NET offers way too many tools to make our life easier, and we do not need to contradict that by making it difficult um, and, and, and making everything 
100% CSS related. Uh, now, that being said, if you are one of those CSS gurus out there that can dish out applications in a 100% CSS oriented way, did, did I just coin a new term, CSS orientation? I like think that, you huh? may have. <laughs> you know, if, if you are one of those people, then more power to you, whatever works. The whole point of this, of this show, of what I'm doing here, is to make sure that I express my objectivity. Um, <laughs> but most, most, well, most people. <laughs> I'm sorry, like did that. you say objectivity? <laughs> Toler- how about let's use the word should we use the word tolerance nah. I think you're, nah. you're expressing your bias is what you're doing <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm not I try not to be biased one way or another because programming I mean I, I you know once again I can't take credit for what somebody else said I got a friend of mine that I worked with a long time ago and he once made the comment to me that programming is a very personal art and it really really is it's very very easy to offend a developer by telling him the way they're doing something sucks you know what I mean yeah, and uh, and and it the problem is that we're offending a lot of people out there, and it, it's 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 easier to offend than not to sometimes. Um, what was that line from uh, from um, what was it Goldmember or something like that, where Austin Powers says, "I only ha- I only hate two kinds of people: those who are intolerant against others and the Dutch." <laughs> <laughs> I'm t- I'm intolerant of intolerance. Well, that you know that that explains Stephen Forte walking around Amsterdam saying, "I hate the Dutch." <laughs> no, I that, guess he, I I, yeah, was, he was mimicking Austin Powers. All I right, think that was Huckabee, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I want to I want to close this number by saying CSS is definitely a great technology, but you can't ignore the learning curve. And if you don't have the time put it, to put into the learning curve, if you're one of those people out there that enjoys using tables and and uses them well without overdoing it and without, you know, nesting yourself into table hell. Um, I see no reason why not to continue doing that. Um, I use CSS. I use it primarily in what originally CSS was meant for, which was styling. As a matter of fact, I don't, right. do, I don't do styling without CSS. I, I strongly recommend that all your styling is done the CSS route. Yeah, ASP.NET uses CSS for styling. Com- so. Completely. And even if you're using ASP.NET themes and skins, you should still be putting CSS on top of that because themes and skins works beautifully with cascading style sheets. Now, if you have those CSS skills where you can do all your positioning and relative and absolute positioning and all that stuff uh, using CSS, if you can do it uh, well and make sure the code is maintainable by somebody who comes in after you, then more power to you. And we're going to be seeing more and more people get into very serious CSS use as, as jQuery continues its, uh, its aggressive path that I, that I see it taking. So... So we'll see where it goes. I just I, I want to make sure that people that are not CSS gurus and feel guilty because they're not, um, stop, you know, stop feeling guilty. Yeah. Because I certainly am not a CS guru. I'm I'm, I'm with you guys. Yeah. Well, you use what works. What what works exactly for you. Exactly right. Exactly right. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. And when it comes to testing web applications, usually you have two options. Do it manually, which is hard and takes forever, or use automated testing software, which is quite expensive and rarely does a good job with modern Ajax applications. And all of this is destined to change with Telerik's new automated testing solution, WebUI Test Studio, which promises to bring a new era of automated testing to the masses. The product is offered in partnership with Art of Test, the experts in quality assurance technologies. Telerik Web Test Studio is specialized for testing ASP.NET applications, especially ones with rich AJAX and client-side functionality. 
What's more, it's fully integrated in both Visual Studio Team Suite and Professional Edition, making it easy for developers and QA to collaborate. To top it off, the studio ships with special wrappers for the Telerik Ajax controls, which expose control-specific test actions. Web UI Test Studio is ready for the future with Silverlight testing features coming soon. Check it out at telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Okay, so you ready to piss somebody else off? Let's go. All right. So number eight of things that annoy me is the rhetoric of domain-driven design is right, data-centric is wrong. Hmm. Okay. And uh, domain-driven design is awesome. It absolutely is. There's been some great documentation out there. Um, you had one of the uh, guys on your show, actually, a guy named, uh, I think it's Jimmy Nielsen uh, yeah. from Europe, uh, who wrote a terrific book on domain-driven design. Um, if you can, uh, if you have time to read that book, uh, it's pretty thick. It's a fantastic book, and he did a great job, and the design concept itself is very good. But there's, there's way too much data, there's way too much properly written data-centric applications out there uh, to knock that design and to call it wrong. Um, we, we can't dismiss the fact that data-centric design does have a lot of values. Um, domain-driven design does give a lot more importance to the object model. With domain-driven design, it's all about writing your objects first mm -hmm. and data later. Mm -hmm. It's all about how the model represents the business domain. However, that being said, said a data-centric model does give you some advantages in the case of uniformity and standards adherence. Okay. You know, and if you're in, and I, you know me, I'm, I'm in the cogeneration spaces. I have my product. Mm -hmm. um, the cogeneration serves more a data-centric model than it does a domain-driven model. That's just the bottom line. So cogeneration okay. is obviously not for everybody. But if you use cogeneration in a data-centric model, you you do get the benefit of a lot of code uniformity. And in a lot of projects that I go to as a consultant, it's very important for me to leave the absolute most maintainable and easy-to-follow code I can behind because more often than not, the team that's going to follow me is of a, a, a lesser skill set. Um, sometimes, I, here, I'll, I'll be blunt, sometimes they're morons. Oh, <laughs> and, okay. And they, <laughs> don't, and they, don't hold back. Yeah. Don't, don't be shy, Miguel. When, Come on. <laughs> When do I ever hold back? And you know the fact that you have the, the, the fact that you got a data centric model where where there's object mimicking of the database uh, means the code behind those objects is going to follow certain standards that are followed by every single one of those objects. Yeah. And you can't dis you can't dismiss the value of that. There really is a lot of value. It lets you code very fast. It lets you deliver products probably a little faster than with a DDD design, which requires a little more thought process. Um, and even though, even though it may not give the importance to the object model as much as it does to the database, um, we still live in a world where clients want their stuff out the door as fast as possible. Right. So we can't always have time for that fantastic design phase. And, you know, we need to get some good architecture in there, of course, but, you know, clients still want, you know, we, we, we still have the situation, I encounter it all the time, where you tell a client, you know, God forbid you tell a client, um, I can give you an application that's got very, very poor architecture, but I can do it in 50% of the time. They're going to jump on that. Because to a client, good architecture and domain-driven and stuff like that, it doesn't mean anything to them. All they want is their final product. Yeah. 
So for those of, of you and me in some cases that are still doing data-centric modeling out there, um, it is a, a way, especially of incorporating code generation, of getting applications out very fast and still having those applications be properly written and maintained well. They're not, they're not going to be poorly written applications just because they didn't follow a DDD model. At the other end of the spectrum, you have those people who, will, when you convince them to take the time and do it right, will get impatient because they can't see anything quick enough. Absolutely. And, you know, there's nothing that says you can't have both. You can definitely incorporate both models together. I mean, I've written, I've written systems before where I have a data-centric ORM layer that is accessed either – it's part of my business tier. So I have no problem accessing that layer directly from my clients as well as putting a domain-driven business engine layer between it that perhaps wraps up several calls to the ORM. You know what I mean? There, there, you, you can have a nicely designed hybrid model um, and, and, not, uh, and, and not break good architecture or design principles. Yeah. Definitely possible. Uh, so once again, to, to the underdog, because it seems that DDD is the up-and-coming craze, right? So the data-centric guy kind of gets left behind and uh, says, oh, man, I, I must really be doing it wrong if everybody's into this DDD thing. I'm here to tell you, I think, no, you're not. You're not doing it wrong. DDD is awesome, and definitely learn it, and learn what it has to give you. And read Jimmy's book, because that's, that's the book that teaches it very well. Okay. But you're, you're not being a bad developer because you're doing things in a data-centric way. Seems like, you know, your overall theme is just sort of anti-zealotry. Completely anti-zealotry. Yeah. And, oh, and, and, that, and I'll, I'll wait till we get to number one. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, number seven. Number seven is not here to rag on anybody except Microsoft. <laughs> Let him have it. Hit All him. right. So number seven is just a pet peeve that I, I never thought I'd need it until I sat and had a conversation with Mark Miller about three, four years ago. And I remember where this was. This was in the Moscone Center in VS Live 2006, San Francisco. And we started talking about, and, and this is, this is a, a, just a funny side tangent real quick, Carl. Um, I, it was the first time that I had met Mark face-to-face. Yeah. And me and you had just finished recording the two kickoff episodes of DNR TV. Remember that? Yep. When I went up to New London. And, uh, and I, I, I introduced myself to Mark, and we knew who each other was by name, but we've never met. I introduced myself. We were sitting at a table in the cafeteria. And, I, and I, he told me, oh, I just saw you did DNR TV. Good job on the shows. So I, I, I told him, um, yeah, did you notice how much uh, I used Code Rush in it? And typical Miller reaction was, yeah, I did. But you didn't use it enough, so yeah. I made a list. So, Dude, so I made a list, and he took out his laptop. <laughs> the guy was watching the show, making a list of every possible place where I could have used Code Rush that I didn't. Dude, you should have seen him on the on the uh, road trip. He sat right in front, and when I didn't use a, a you know the right mnemonic or whatever, he would give me <laughs> shit. I'm doing a presentation here. Shut up. <laughs> nobody knows that product like Miller. No, you know, of course I, I he think wrote it. And the, the second, I think the second guy that has the most Code Rush knowledge that I've ever met is, is Dustin Campbell, who doesn't work for, uh, for DevExpress anymore. He's with Microsoft now. But anyway, to, uh, not to change it off too much, um, me and Mark started talking about uh, things, uh, not just Code Rush, but things in .NET. And one of the things that he mentioned that he really wished it had, I never even thought of. And leave it to Mark to plant that seed in my head. I've been wanting it ever since because I find myself desiring it at every, every time that I write code. And it's something that that uh, competitor uh, system Delphi does support, and that is virtual static members. Yeah, okay. the ability to 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 write either abstract or virtual members in static classes, static methods, static properties, or static you know static classes themselves, 
and force an override or allow an override of these static members. Right now, we can only override you know, virtual or abstract members when they belong to the object, not the class. Well, give us an example of when you'd need that. I'll give you a perfect example. CSLA. Rocky ran into this problem because Rocky wrote this wonderful framework, and the framework, of course, gives you a point of start uh, for your business object. So you're writing a brand-new business object. You inherit from a class called Business Base. Now, if you want to add some authorization rules to this object, he gives you an override ability, a virtual method, not a abstract method, a virtual one, meaning you don't have to use it if you don't want. But if you want to add authorization rules, you override the add authorization rules method. If you want to add validation rules to your object, you override the add business rules method. However, he also gives you the ability to add authorization rules at the class level, something that is going to be checked before the object is actually instantiated. So the way that's done right now is by creating class-level authorization rules in a method called add object authorization rules. But you are responsible for writing this method and spelling it and casing it correctly because the CSLA framework is going to use reflection to go in and find this method. If it finds it, it's going to use its contents to build the authorization rules. If we had virtual static members, Rocky could have written this as a virtual static over uh, method in the base class, allowing us to override it because it, it is going to be a static member. We don't uh, have any object level yet. All we have is a class. Well, it's very helpful when you have a framework that you need to be uh, to make flexible. Yeah. It, so that can adapt to a lot of different situations. Ab- absolutely. And, and if you don't have this ability, you're forced to use, to rely on reflection. And once you're forced to rely on reflection, yeah, now, now you gotta, you gotta count on people spelling things right. Right. You know what I mean? Not only that, but you take performance hit, right? Oh, completely. Ab- ab- absolutely. Absolutely do. Um, here, here's, here's my, here's my request slash challenge to anybody listening right now, okay? Um, give this one, roll this idea, roll this one around in your head, okay? Roll, roll around in your head the idea of having virtual static members, the ability to create virtual or abstract members in a class and override them in a, in a, in a, in a derived class, not at the object level, just at the class level. And if you come up with a good idea for it, write the show. And I'd, I'd like to know what these results are a few months from now, Carl, hmm. because you're, people, once people got this, Hey, I wonder how the, you know if this would be a good idea in their head. They're going to come up with reasons for having it, for for wanting it. Okay. So this is one from Microsoft. If Microsoft is listening, I take this over multiple inheritance any day of the week. All right. Okay. What's next? Now we can go. Now we can go back to pissing somebody off. <laughs> I feel so much oh, better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Number six on my list of people who things. piss other people off. That's it. <laughs> top ten things of uh, top ten. Uh, the number six on my list of top ten things that annoy Miguel are stored procs bad, ORM good. Okay. Okay. But the, the, but the truth is is that ORM is really a design concept. Uh, ORM can certainly be accomplished with stored procs. Um, there are several good tools out there, and Hibernate being one of them, that allow you to do ORM without having any database development knowledge whatsoever, and they pride themselves on that. And uh, it, it makes for really heated discussions at conferences, specifically the MVP Summit. Um, next time, and I, won't, I won't get into the details of this one, but Richard, I know you're good buddies with Stephen. Next time you're talking to Stephen, ask him about his uh, stored procs versus ORM argument. And I'm not going to say with who. Just ask him about it. He'll tell you all about it. <laughs> but, you know, uh, 
as a database guy, I've come to appreciate the fact that the one of the core original advantages of stored procedures was that they performed better than than dynamic SQL. And in the modern SQL server, the 2005-2008, that advantage has largely gone away. Query plans are now derived so quickly that, that there's no advantage to the overhead. But I go ahead. Here's a big but. There are other reasons to use stored procedure, and the biggest one is security. Yeah, I have a big butt, too. And that is uh, – oh, come on. That was funny. Come on. The thing you sit on? <laughs> come on now. Guys, give me some props here. <laughs> um, well, you know, the, it, it wasn't just for that. But, yeah, it's security, exactly that. There was a, there's a security model inherent in, in stored procedures. There's a, a level of controlling access to the database to – to limit what a developer can and can't do. How many developers have done uh, delete star, you know, without knowing, but, you know, in hitting the button before they've actually finished the query? You can't see me right now, but I'm raising my head real high. Yeah, yeah. I've done it, absolutely. Yeah, I did it too. I did it too. And and you know what, Rich, Uh, to add to, to to, I mean, you're obviously talking about execute privileges, and to add to that, it's not just that it lets you give the database only execute privileges. Sometimes you have no choice. That's just the yes. bottom line. There's many companies out there. I've done consulting for a number of investment banks in New York, okay? None of these companies, Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Lehman, well, there is no more Lehman Brothers. You know, the, all yeah, those that's companies, not a really good example of companies. <laughs> all, all of those companies, none of them will allow you to roll a product in production and give the database anything other than execute privileges. And if you right. only have execute privileges, you're going to be limited. Yeah, well, they, this is the thing is they draw the line. The, ultimately, you've got a group of guys whose job it is to protect the data, and they have to allow the developers in in some way. You know, it's very easy to protect the data if nobody accesses it. Well, and the other thing is, how on earth is a company like Goldman Sachs, Lehman Brothers, how are they supposed to fleece the American public out of billions of dollars if they don't have a security <laughs> model on their goddamn database? How are they supposed to do that? <laughs> I'm sorry. As long as yeah, we're pissed yeah. off, I thought I'd just throw my two cents hey, in. Hey, yeah, we're we're doing it. This is the show to do it in, right? Right. <laughs> well, the you know, the, 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 I'm I'm predominantly a store prox guy, and but I, I do not knock anybody that wants to go the ORM route. I mean, I've never used an Hibernate, but I I've heard enough good things about it to not want to knock it. And Hibernate right. relies primarily on building dynamic SQL, as Richard pointed out, the performance is no longer a factor. I agree 100% with you. It's just like disk space is no longer a factor, right, Rich? Yeah. Um, you don't have to worry about that stuff. You're, it requires no database development knowledge because everything is done in XML metadata file. You don't have to worry about how to write a select. How to, it, it does it all for you. If you need code that's going to be used in multiple types of databases, like Oracle and Sybase as well, and Hibernate would be a wonderful thing. Now, I want to close this topic off by being a little bit biased in favor of stored procedures, and that is one of the arguments in favor of, uh, of non-stored proc-oriented ORM tools being in Hibernate or anything else out there is that the developers never have to know anything about writing database code or how to do it or how uh, database uh, storage works or anything like that. And the way I feel about that is quite the opposite. Um, I think that knowing how to do at least the the, the basics of – I'm not a database guru anywhere near than the Stephen Forte and, and Richard Campbell are, but I know how to design tables. I know how to write store procedures. I know how to write pretty complex store procedures. I know how to write views and triggers. And me personally, I think that kind of 
basic, and I call that basic, database knowledge is a requirement for any dev out there. And I, I personally wouldn't want to hire a dev working on my team that didn't know how to write SQL. Not be, uh-huh. and, 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 of course, they'll come back with the, well, I'm not a database guy. I don't need to know how to write SQL. Yes, you do. I'm going to be blunt with that one. You need to know at least how it works and how to write what makes a good SQL statement different from a bad SQL statement. Well, let's qualify that. If your program uses a database, <laughs> okay, exactly. then you need to know, see, if your program doesn't use a database, if you're writing a device driver for a graphics card, you don't need exactly. to know how to use a database. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't like, that, that's one of the, what's one of the pro-Link arguments I heard when Link first came out, or Link to SQL, should I say, um, is that now the developer doesn't need to know anything about ADO.net. They can just use Link to SQL to access the database. Well, while Link to SQL might be a very good technology, and Link in general is a great technology, um, I don't want a developer that doesn't know a damn thing about ADO.net, because it's a crucial part of the framework. You need to know at least how it works. Yep, yep. So uh, I, I don't want to appeal to the lowest common denominator. I want to try to raise it a bit. Uh, so, I would call out one other ORM for those who are caught between wanting the ORM and dealing with the story procedures, and that mm-hmm. be LLBL Gen, uh, uh, Franz Buma's invention, which is very much balancing the line between the two of them. Okay, okay. I'm, I'm familiar with the product. In, in the code generation spaces, Franz competes with me. Uh, he yeah. does more of a traditional ORM-type product. Mine is more of a traditional code generation product. I don't claim for uh, I don't claim that CodeBreeze is an ORM at all, uh, but I have heard good things about that. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Um, okay, number five. Okay, we're back to zealotry now, okay? We talked about the CSS zealots. We talked about the DDD zealots. Now let's, uh, let's keep it in the three-letter acronym uh, category here and talk about the TDD zealots. Uh-oh. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, this one is down to piss somebody off, right? Testing can, is I good. Can, I, oh, testing is fantastic. I'm, I don't have nothing. I want, yeah, i got to get that out of the way now. Unit testing is awesome, and I heavily, heavily encourage it. What I have a problem with is the extreme of TDD use, the extreme of writing a test before every single method you write. Um, I, I got to do something in my career. I got to deliver software, and I got to deliver it in time. And you know, it, it, I just, I just find that I, I have, I have met some people out there that are so 100% TDD religious that. Even for a, a little test app that they write to get something tested, like, like Carl, you're an old sockets guy, so you're going to write a quick little app to test some kind of sockets code. Um, even that has to be done in 100% TDD. And here's here's the kicker: if you don't, the, the the main problem that I have with this is not the 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 task and the design and the, the paradigm of doing something in a TDD way. It's the attitude that if you're not doing it, you're a bad programmer. Yeah. That, All right, that, so uh, that's the primary part here. So I'll play the devil's advocate and say you're just lazy. 
if, that I'm just lazy? Yeah, what, that that's I don't want to write say. all these tests? That's what they'll say. No, I, I, okay, I'll, I'll counter that with saying um, I write quite a few unit tests. I, in my opinion, I write unit tests whenever I need to write unit tests. Okay. That, I know that's a very big statement. It's a very general statement. Um, I've, I, I have, I, I, I no longer use Windows or console apps in order to test my code. I use any unit to test my code. Um, I use unit tests not just to test a method, but to test a combination of methods. Most of my unit tests are not just going to test method A to make sure that it returns a string. Right. They're going to test, they're going to test a process that may call upon method A, B, and C and expect a certain result. That's the way my unit tests work. And I can, I can already see, you know, uh, a lot of guys out there probably cursing at me, and I know where these guys live. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that a threat? <laughs> no. <laughs> Chuck, we're in a different state. Um, you know, the, in general, TDD preaches something that is very good. And this is a concept that I learned a long time ago, and I, I can't remember if it was in Deborah's book that I read this. It might have been Deborah's book because I, I learned a lot of my original object orientation from Deborah Carrada yeah. back before, back be, when all I knew, Deborah Carrada is just somebody that wrote a book. I mean, I had no idea about the community. You had just written your internet programming book, Carl. Right. And, and we didn't know each other. This was like 1994, 1995, um, which is one of the reasons it was such a, a, a thrill for me to actually meet Deborah. I learned so much from one of her first books. But the sentence that I remember, and I can't remember if Deborah had takes credit for this or somebody else, was the best way, the, 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 the the best way to design an object is to use it first. And that kind of describes what TDD is all about in its general form. You know what I mean? Rather than sit there and say, okay, what am I going to call it? Oh, I know what I'm going to call this class, but what methods is it going to have? What properties is it going to have? Where is it going to inherit from? Rather than deal with all that up first, write some code like if that object was already done. Mm. Use that code. Obviously, it's going to break, and then go back and write the object. That's essentially the TDD. That's what tester uh, development is, yeah. Exa- exactly right. Um I just don't find the need to do that for 100% of my methods. That's that's the problem that I have. A lot of this kind of mentality and rhetoric comes from the diehard Agile crowd. And Agile is a wonderful thing. I use Agile in almost every project that I do. Um, just not, I don't use everything at the 100% uh, to the 100% uh, of its original manifesto. You know what I mean? Um, Agile has one version of itself called Extreme, right? Extreme Programming, XP, I think they call it. Mm-hmm. And XP has 12 items in its manifesto. And, um, you know, it's almost like getting ISO 9000 certified, right? If you're not using all 12 of these items, you're not an extreme programmer. You're not an agile programmer. And these are the statements that, that beginners read and they end up feeling really bad about. I'll, I'll, I'll never be as good as that guy because I'm not using all 12 steps of extreme. Right. You know, I have a problem with that. What's one of the um, what's one of the one of the the bullet points of the extreme manifesto is uh, pair programming, right? You right. need to be pair programming. Uh, there, there's one aspect of agile I have no use for whatsoever, and I'm not saying it's not good because there's a lot of people out there doing pair programming and it works. It works for them. It doesn't work for me. You know, yeah. if I if there's going to be somebody standing over my shoulders, they better damn well be rubbing them. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it just uh, that just doesn't work for me. So same thing with TDD. It's just it's the extreme aspect of it. It's like you said, right? What I have a what I have a problem with is zealotry. Yeah, that's basically and, and, what and, I'm getting. And agile, agile, and extreme programming. You know, all this should be used as a tool in your arsenal. Learn all these steps. Learn how they all work, 
and use the ones that work for your team. And there, there's, it's no wonder that there are so many flavors of Agile because people have developed their own, you know, Scrum was born that way, right? Scrum is one flavor of Agile. It may not use all 12 steps of extreme. It may bring in a couple of new steps. And there's many others that, that, that follow that same pattern. Yep. So, okay. So, all right. Um, let's go to number four. Number four is something that I don't have a lot of technical knowledge in, but I don't like where, where part of the community is headed with it. And that is web forms bad, MBC good. MBC is awesome. I love the pattern. I love what Phil Hack did with, uh, and, and his team, of course, uh, what they did with the product. It's, it's on its way. It's got some great potential and it's very, very usable right now. But I have to reiterate what Hanselman, what Scott Hanselman himself said on stage, and that is MBC is not Webforms 4.0. And too many people out there still think it is. Yeah. It's an alternative. It's an alternative it's architecture. Completely an alternative. And it doesn't even have to be an alternative. They can certainly coexist. There's nothing that says you cannot have an and cannot have MBC and conventional web forms in the same application. Absolutely. Right. Um so I won't spend too much time on this one, uh, because I, I can't sit here and argue pluses and minuses of MBC because I, I have not written a full blown MBC application yet. So I don't want to um I don't want to, to, to get into that without full knowledge of, uh, of backing up my statements. Um, okay. I will say, I, I will leave you with a contra- I got to leave you with a controversial statement. I can't just drop this one, right? <laughs> so okay. I'll leave you with my controversial statement on this. And, and that is one of the, one of the pro MBC things that I keep hearing constantly. And this usually comes from the TDD guys, C number five, right? Um, is how much more testable MBC is, you know, because now you can take all the code behind it you write in your action classes in MBC, uh, they can be tested now, whereas in regular web forms we couldn't, we couldn't test those classes. And I'm, I'm really big on, on the Rocky Lotka, uh, philosophy of code separation. And that is that UI code should only have three types of code. Number one, code to interact with the widgets on the screen, whether it's Windows or web. Number two, code to interact with your next layer down, being a service layer or a business layer. And number three, exception handling code. So if you're concerned, that concerned, with the testability of your web pages, I submit to you that you're probably putting way too much non-UI-oriented code in them to begin with. Probably right. That makes sense. I'll buy that. Yep. And, and I'm sure that statement will piss several people off out there. But, hey, that's what I'm here to do. I declared that at the beginning of the show. I'm here to piss people off, right? Nice. <laughs> So, all right, number three is a very simple one, and I know how you guys feel about this. We've discussed this before. The C-sharp versus VB war is still on. Why? When the hell is this going to stop? I always break the ice with my audience when I'm at a conference by saying, who are the V people in here? And they raise their hands, and I say, who's the C-sharp people in here? And they raise their hands. Then I just kind of, you know, smirk and say, now, who are the C-sharpers that hate VB? And I'll get at least a dozen hands that go up. Yeah. Yet if I, ask the, if I ask the question in reverse... I rarely get a hand that goes up. So this animosity comes primarily from the C-sharp community, of which I am a member. Now, I'm a member of both because I, I'm a .NET developer. I know, I know and use both languages extensively. Um, but BB is here to stay. I'm telling the C-sharp guys that. Get yep. over it. Yep. And not only that, that whole, you know, that whole um, thing about the languages are going to diverge and diverge and diverge, that's not happening anymore. These no. teams are actually being brought together at Microsoft. So VB is here to stay, and it's going to become a power player. And uh, if you don't like it, uh, go to Java or get out of the business. Okay. Um, 
it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun ragging on the Java guys. Why do we need to bring this kind of war into the C sharp in, into the .NET world? Really, we're on the same team. Exactly, exactly. And plus, you can't dismiss the fact there's a lot of VB shops out there still. I mean, Carl, you were an old VB guy. I'm an old VB guy myself. I made mm-hmm. a great living from VB three to VB six. Yep. And there's a lot of shops out there that moved in VB.net because it was a logical step for them in order to leverage the knowledge that their people had. You could also say we wouldn't have a .NET framework if it weren't for the success of Visual Basic. Absolutely, absolutely. And at one point, I don't know if this statement is this still true, but I know that at one point VB was the widest used development platform out there. It was, and it was right before .NET as well. That's right, that's right. Okay, so we're, we're getting, we're, we're almost done. We're close. The, the second one, now this is, this is an annoyance that I have that we can talk about this for hours. In fact, I have because I have an entire conference, well not a conference talk because conference, conferences typically won't accept a talk like this, but I have a talk that I, that I've done at Code Camps called Recruiters, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Uh-oh. And I have a lot of pet peeves with recruiters. I've done, I've done a lot of business with many different recruiters out there. And I, I, w- I want to tell you, there are some fantastic recruiters out there. And if they're listening, well, any recruiter that's listening, they're going to say, yeah, I'm one of them, right? Um, the, the, the main problem that I have with recruiters, and uh, I'm going to limit this number two to just one item, and that is recruiter sales pitches. The used car salesman approach that recruiters give you. The, the emails that you get in, in bulk, because you know nothing comes from a recruiter unless it's in bulk, right? Uh, the email that comes to you in bulk that talks about, quote-unquote, a super opportunity or, quote-unquote, a hot job. Mm. How are they going to know if it's a super opportunity or a hot job? Half of these recruiters don't know what the hell they're recruiting for in the first they place. Don't, they don't. They certainly don't. Quote-unquote, growth-oriented positioning position. You know, here's, here's a personal favorite of mine. I actually write this, wrote this one down. This is, this is all for real, okay? An unreal opportunity for a dynamic mover and shaker. Yeah. Will you please give me a break? <laughs> you know, some of these are just an insult to your intelligence. Um, there are so many gripes I can talk about with recruiters, and I, you know, when I do this, when I do this presentation, recruiters, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I, I try to make sure, and I invite recruiters to come along because I try to make sure that this. I, I wrote this presentation not to rag on recruiters. I wrote it to to get recruiters and candidates together discussing the problems that they have with each other because it is of it is no coincidence that recruiters are the butt of the butt of all of our jokes there isn't a developer out there that doesn't have some kind of recruiter horror story how can you tell when a recruiter is lying his lips are moving (laughs) how do you keep a recruiter from drowning take your foot off his head well, there you go. There you go. So, and, and the, you know, the truth of the matter is that that profession is a needed one in our in our in our line of work. It definitely is. Not everybody has the ability or the capacity or even the opportunity to self-market themselves. That's it true. takes it takes a little bit of talent, a little bit of luck, a little bit of good timing to do that that kind of stuff. And a good recruiter is worth their weight in gold. Yeah. A bad one. A bad one needs to be eliminated. They're yeah. a detriment to the business. They really are. Um, you got recruiters that don't read resumes carefully. You can tell because they call you and they ask you about stuff that is clearly either on your resume in a different way or not on your resume at all. You know, like you're a .NET developer, they're asking you about COBOL. I mean, and the funny thing is, is that if you put that you used to do COBOL, 
25 years ago, and everything from then on has become Microsoft Technologies. I have, I've had recruiters that try to convince me to take a COBOL job that it'll be good for me. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters to this, to this person is staffing the spot and collecting a commission. Your career doesn't mean a damn thing to them. And that's, that's not all of them. They, I, my opinion of a good recruiter is when I truly feel that this person cares about the positioning they're going to put me in, the position they're going to put me in. Because, you know, a recruiter putting you in, the, in a bad position, is, that's going to come back and bite them in the ass because they got a, a client to worry about as well. There's three parties involved in this transaction. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I, I have I have so so many horror stories that I can that I can tell you, Carl. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna run over time and, and give you all my horror stories. But oh, I'll you're give you already this. over time. Uh, am I? Do I do I do I got do I got five more minutes? Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, okay. absolutely. We're just uh, coming just, down to the end. Of it. A couple here. I mean, ma- mass mailings that are clearly clearly a mass mail, but they try to hide the fact that they're a mass mail. Um, by by doing mail merges, you know, you get mm-hmm. you get something that says, "Hello, Miguel, how's the weather over in Lincoln Park? Are you still working with VB?" Yeah, and the word Miguel, the word Lincoln Park, and the word VB are all in all caps. <laughs> all caps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that that kind of stuff is just offensive. Okay, <laughs> it I, had is one, really. I had one recruiter, and I haven't done business with I haven't done business with a recruiter in almost four years. Um, <laughs> but. It, I've, I've actually burned my bridges per, uh, on purpose with a lot of recruiters in my area just so I'm forced to go other routes. Yeah. Um, I had one recruiter that sent me a form saying, I'm going to send you all these technologies in the form. I need you to write down how many years you have of experience in each one. And in that list were things like VB, VB.net, C Sharp, also things like IIS and HTTP Post and HTTP Get, if you can believe that. Wow. So after after I wrote down all my years, the result was 113 years, and the comment that I got back was, "How old am I? That's too many years." <laughs> this, this is the stuff. This is the stuff we deal with, right? How about a recruiter that says, "I'm looking for a programmer that knows C pound." Nice C pound. Or I need, or I need an ASP.NET person. No VB or C sharp required. <laughs> you know, this is an example of how they just don't know what it is that they're. This is like a guy selling you a car, right. and he has no clue what to make a model of that car is. Yeah, he's reading something. Exactly, and and I hate car salesmen. It's it's a wonder that I just I bought a car last week. You know, I bought a new car last week, and it's a wonder that I did that. I try to avoid car salesmen like the like the plague. Who doesn't? All right. So what what number are we down to? Okay, we're we're down to number one. And the number one, because we we got to go out with a bang. We got to go out pissing as many people as we possibly can. So the number one thing on the list of things that annoy Miguel, Alt dot net. Oh, oh no! Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> all right. Now let me let me start with something positive. All right. Generally speaking, the Alt dot I've, I've met the Alt dot net community. I was at the Alt dot net conference this year before the MVP summit. They are some brilliant people in that I community. Agree. I totally some agree. Some of the smartest people that I know in the community, the people that you have a conversation with about yeah. objects and abstraction and inheritance and all these weird things. And listen, we're talking about inheritance like it's a weird thing, right? Yeah. Um, you have a conversation with them and they'll, they'll find a hole in your model and they'll tell you, don't do this, abstract this out and put dependency injection. And they're talking about this stuff. You can tell they know what they're talking yep. about. And it's refreshing having conversations like that with people. It really is. However... That is immediately contradicted by the the rhetoric of my way is better and yours is wrong and even stupid. 
and I see that attitude way too much, and it's coming out of that community, and I really wish it didn't, and it's for that reason that I have not been able to embrace the Alt.net community. And I have a lot of friends in this community, and I'm probably pissing them off as we speak. Hmm. But they're brilliant people, but generally speaking, I'm not naming any names, I see a lot of negative rhetoric coming out about our way, we're, you know, we're the up-and-coming, we're the, 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 the right way of doing something, and you're wrong and you're an idiot for doing that. You're not a true developer. And we need to be a little bit more humble. If any community needs to be a little bit more humble, it's, it's that community. And I'm not the only one that seems to feel this way. Um, you know, it, at the Alt.net conference, it, it was an open space conference, which is kind of a cool format. And, uh, you know, everybody said, people that want to speak, they stand up and they said, my name is so-and-so and I want to talk about this. And then they put it up on the wall, right? Um, well, Scott Hanselman got up. And he proposed a talk. What he wanted to talk about is the topic of why so mean. Why so mean? And the way Scott described it was actually dead on because I felt this way for a very long time. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that somebody put it out there. Um, usually if I put something like that out there, people would just get really pissed off. So I'm glad it was Scott Hanselman that did it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a big roadblock that prevents beginners or people that are eager to learn don't have a lot of resources, um, there's a little roadblock that prevents them from crossing to the side of, 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 of really getting it, of really participating in community stuff, speaking at conferences, uh, being a voice in the community, um, getting into articles, uh, just making, making a difference to other developers out there. And the yeah. way Scott put it is that roadblock is us. You know, that roadblock is, is the lack of humbleness that comes from a lot of devs out there. And, uh, I, I've always, you know, one of the, when I'm at a conference, one of the things that I enjoy the most is actually talking to attendees. I spend as little time in the speaker's lounge as I possibly can. Yeah. Um, and it, I've always felt that they appreciate that. That's really why people go to these conferences is to get some face time with a lot of us. And it's, it's quite enjoyable. There's a lot of great people out there. There's no need to be a, a right. mean developer or a, or a, or a zealot or somebody that preaches, this is the way you should do it. Always do this, never do this. And if you don't follow my rules, get out of the business or you're wrong or you're stupid. When I think of the antithesis of that, one name comes to mind. You know who I'm talking about, Richard. <laughs> Scott Guthrie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> You mean as far as as the antithesis uh, of meanness? I mean, the guy has like you know how many billions of patents he developed ASP.NET. You know, he's the dude, and he's out there at conferences, staying out late, sitting uh, on the stage talking to three people. Absolutely, and he's extremely until they are ready to go and they've had enough, and then he'll say, "Okay." I'm done. The, the, actually, the only, the, only, the only reason why you couldn't get any FaceTime with Scott Guthrie is because he's, he's very famous for flying into a talk and flying out of it as soon as he's done. Yeah. Because he's just a very busy he's guy. Very but busy if you guy. happen to be one of, well, if you happen to be one of the lucky few that gets FaceTime with him, you'll agree that he's just extremely approachable. Yeah. On, on, on any topic. And let me tell you, I've written my share of emails to Scott asking him questions here and there, uh, when I need to, to access, you know, some, some Microsoft knowledge and I just don't have another name. And more often than not, Scott will not answer the question directly, but he'll pass it on to somebody else yep. and then you'll be included in that email stream from that moment in time until you receive your answer. Yeah. Not a mean bone in his body. Not at all. And, you know, we, then, then that's what we need. We need some more Scott Guthrie's in the world. Yes, we do. I agree. 
And and you know if you if you mix that with with the brilliance and knowledge that is in that alt.net community, you can have a wonderful wonderful set of mentors out there for people to look up to and to get help from. Yep. Well said. So that is my number one thing. Uh, I am done pissing people off. Where should people send their hate mail? So send it to miguel.netdude.com. My my wife got home, and I haven't acknowledged that yet, which means she's probably going to be the next person I'm going to piss off today. <laughs> I've locked myself down in my office here. Well, as long as you're swinging, you might as well swing around, you know. <laughs> Miguel, well, thanks. Fun, yeah, it really has been fun, and it's been always it's always a pleasure talking to you. And uh, you know, it's it's good to be controversial once in a while. Stirs things up. There you go. There you go. All right, guys. Okay. Take it easy. We'll see you, and we'll see you next time. .NET rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter van